When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. interesting from my perspective that like things I've written about for years are suddenly being discovered by like everybody <laughs> um so that's kind of like like with Heart Island and things it's just it, it every time I write about Heart Island I'm like I'll never have to write that story again <laughs> still, like, yeah. Nope, yeah people still don't know it exists it's fascinating so but I don't know how much you want to get into like COVID-19 things well, and I think that's the and, and and maybe just before we launch in, maybe we should just take a minute on that. Like, so uh, I, I I was you know I, I was quite simply drawn to your your topics and like I kind of joked I saw like the Sedlitz you know ossuary mm-hmm. you know and and things like that where it's like just just kind of fascinating, um, but also like how much you know how much how much to talk about like death, right? Like, cause death mm-hmm. is like in front of us, right? Death and disease, right? Like more in front of us right now. And I think one of the things that, I mean, you, you like if you, what I could see about the symbols in the cemetery and all the things you're talking about, there's like these larger narratives, right? Where, where people have dealt with um, death in different ways and, and, and dealt with, uh, dealt with mortality. And I just see you in investigating that research and that writing about that is just like looking at that directly, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to look at it directly. And I mean, what, what's been your experience in, in talking about that? I mean, is it something where it's like, you've kind of feel like, uh, I don't know if I should keep going on and, and chat about this or just like, we should just kind of like forge into it. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't you, don't you think? Yeah. Um, you mean like forge into um, the topic of death? Yeah. Well, I mean, just like, you know, just with like, there's no reason to sugarcoat the the, the depiction of disease, Spanish flu, like that article. Yeah. Right. Like in, in kind of like get right into it. I mean, we don't have to exist in there for the whole like interview. But I guess what I'm telling you, too, is like, let's let's get into it. Let's chat about it. You know what I mean? And not yeah, like, and I think it's um it's definitely a conversation I've been having with, you know, I'm pretty connected with other people who write and think about death. And so for us, I think it's like, of course, you're always thinking about what happens when someone dies, who's caring for their body, how are we mourning them? And it has like a heightened visibility now. 
And I think that that's really interesting and like how I was talking with um, Jessica Bomert, who's president of the Woodlands Cemetery in Philadelphia, which is like a fascinating place. They've really remade themselves as like a community gathering place. They let people garden graves. And she was how like, it's not just the COVID deaths that are visible. It's like all death is visible right now because it's like, even if your grandfather dies at the age of 93, not from COVID, like you can't have a funeral for him or you can't like gather together like you would. So there's kind of like this new focus on, I think in a way that there hasn't been before, but I guess like me personally, because I write about death and culture a lot and also lead cemetery tours and I'm just personally interested. It's like brought a new attention to me that things I've written about a lot or thought about a lot are still needing attention because sometimes I think like, well, I've written about this a hundred times. I don't need to write about it again, but it's a good reminder that even though death is hardly like a unique experience, it's still kind of invisible. And there's also like a particular treatment that I found within, you know, the U.S. as far as, I mean, there's a cultural kind of context of how death is viewed. And mm-hmm. once you, you know, once we, there's a lot of discussion about like the industry, right? I mean, I've read like Caitlin Dowdy's stuff, um, oh, yeah. you know, and which is, you know, um, really, really fascinating stuff. And um, part of the thing, too, I was thinking of when it comes to the cemeteries and some things I read in the past was like Lauren Rhodes, mm-hmm. um, Morbid Curiosity Cures the Blues. And mm-hmm. it's like one of those statements that for me is always just like resonant. I'm like, that's such a true statement. Like, you know, there's there's some sort of like comfort in like feeling like you can look at these things that are very much part of our experience rather than like sublimating them you know underneath right Mm -hmm. so um all right so allison um uh what were you um so so tell me what you were like as um as a young child uh i mean i guess in turn like i honestly didn't get into cemeteries until I moved to New York at the age of 24 so that kind of like came later um just I guess I do it chronologically but like it just happened I moved a block away from Greenwood Cemetery and was just fascinated with that there was this huge Victorian burial ground that kind of was stuck in time while the rest of New York has propelled forward so I got into cemeteries more because I was always interested, I think, in history and storytelling. Uh, so I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. And yeah, I guess as a kid, I just, I like, I like a like the usual person who grows up into a literary nerd. I like, like to read library was great. Um, I don't feel like I had like an exceptionally unusual childhood but I think also growing up in Oklahoma um, it's not until I moved away from it that I realized it was kind of different from the rest of the country it's just like you know it's one of the last states to become part of the United States it's got this like 
had like boomtown kind of feel to it still and the visual culture is also very different like it didn't occur to me growing up that oh not everyone knows who like the Kiowa Five are or like <laughs> indigenous art is kind of absent in the rest of the country um so yeah that and I I was in Oklahoma through college and then I moved to France for a little while and then I moved to New York so that's kind of my like trajectory in time yeah and um so everybody listen to something rather than nothing we're talking with allison c meyer and uh, uh she, she's she's a writer uh researcher um uh, published in a, a lot of uh a lot of publications and um you know, uh, one of the things I was wondering, Allison, is is uh, you seem to go into a lot of different uh, research areas or, or topics uh, in your writing. Um, when we're talking about art, what 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 forms of art uh, attract you know attract you? Sure, I tend to think about art, um, and I think I describe it as visual culture a lot of the time because. I like to look at visual expression in a very wide way because I think that's more accessible for more people. So like I'm, you know, I'm more than happy that I get a chance to write about like the Laszlo Maholi Naj show at the Guggenheim or something. But then I also have spent a lot of time like looking at manhole covers and thinking about them as fine art or maybe not fine art, but you know, like at least a graphic <laughs> art and yeah, like I, I appreciate art that kind of engages in the world um, in ways that people can access. Like I recently wrote about this project that, um, oh gosh, I, I shouldn't say people's names if I'm not going to get them right. Um, Ellie Laurel and Anne Brucoco, who were like cutting up sections of lawns to show the dormant seed banks below them to kind of show like why American lawn culture is bad for the environment because like it's covering up all these like native plants and stuff and I like that because it's sculpture in a way and as they told me like you wouldn't let someone just come in and tear up your yard but if you frame it as art you're kind of given permission to do things that you wouldn't otherwise um so I, I like art that kind of does that and brings in those important conversations in ways um Another one like I, I did recently was at the Field Museum. This artist, um, Chris Pappen, did these really interesting graphics over the um, display cases and their Native American hogs. Those display cases like hadn't been updated since, you know, decades. And the label text is very problematic. The way that the objects are presented in a natural history museum is, you know, problematic and rather than um i think the museum does plan at some point to like do a big overhaul but he was able to do this intervention to layer over a more um honest indigenous history while still recognizing that that was part of the museum so i'm always excited when artists are bringing those kind of questions into everyday spaces where you wouldn't see them but then also thinking about, like, what can you do as an artist that, like, you couldn't do another role? 
Yeah, I um, I, 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 read that article about the the lawns too, and you can oh, cool. geek out on that because I thought there was some like absolutely fascinating concepts, right? I mean, the the environmental the environmental impact was obviously, or at least for me, was first and foremost in the consideration. But I even think the concepts that you had in there of the kind of like uh, this, these kind of submerged like wildness that are that's underneath the mm-hmm. lawn, you know, and these uh, seeds in kind of like that time capsule of like, who knows what's going to come up where I, I had no concept like that, that potential was right there. So I thought it was, I, yeah, I thought it was truly wild. And like you said, in putting in the concept of like art, right? Because I mean, take a look at like HOAs, the worst organizations like like, well, I'm not going to go on the HOA, <laughs> man, but like a completely useless appendage, uh, in my opinion, most of the time and like kind of like counterintuitive like rules around lawns and perfection and this picturesque type of thing. So I thought that article in like what you were exploring was very subversive and freeing. Um, yeah, so and I, I enjoyed say, that. I got Ellie Irons, not Ellie Laurel. Sometimes. I don't do well remembering names off the top of my head. She's fantastic. Not the only time I've written about her art. Didn't want to get her name wrong. Um, so, yeah. And I, I yeah, so I, I really appreciated um, reading about that. And, of course, you know, we can get into a little bit, too, about which cemetery tours, but just about as far as, like, the green space that's there and the lawns <laughs> and all that, I, I see it as uh, intertwined. So... Allison, um, I mean, you're 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 really smart. You research a lot of things. You encounter a lot of art. What is art? Yeah, I mean, that is probably not something I can answer or uh, anyone can. But for me, what I approach art as something that's been done like in a deliberate way kind of like as a form of visual expression but I think art can be just about anything which is an annoying way to (laughs) look at things sometimes Um, but for where I come from it's like ways of um, manipulating the world I guess to ask questions it doesn't have to always be in galleries and museums or even public art installations And sometimes maybe the person doing it didn't even really consider it art. Like, um, like I think about W.E.B. Du Bois data visualizations or like um, I'm interested in like 19th century spiritualists who kind of used drawing to record what they were experiencing with the spirit world. And maybe they weren't necessarily thinking I am creating art, but I think that what it is is art so yeah it's it's a hard question to answer and I'll be you know I have a BA in journalism too and so (laughs) I certainly am not the person that is um going to answer that question once and for all yeah but I think it's a good thing to continue to ask because like if we only think art is like what's hanging on the museum walls then I think that really limits um our you know, a lot of richness in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate, um, your, your speculations on it because a lot of time, you know, I find, uh, you know, that's what it is speculations on the topic. And even with theorists, you know, 
um, kind of try to point where, you know, like is, is, you know, with a novel, is there a perfectly written novel, right? Is there one mm-hmm. without extraneous words, you know, and it has to do with a lot of the context and definition. And, um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate your comments on that. Uh, Allison, um, I had conveyed to you, um, I had read your article, um, uh, Spanish flu and the depiction of disease. Um, it was written uh, last last fall, and I'm very glad I'm, I encountered it because I was able to, um, well, read about a topic that had been, has been interesting me uh, more, more recently. Um, mm-hmm. Um, but also, um, I'm a big fan of uh, Egon Chile, the painter, uh, his art. And, you know, as far as that article, like, and how it pulled me in and drew me in, of course, again, was the topic of, you know, art in a pandemic. But also this um, this piece I had never seen, that that painting, unfinished painting uh, by by Egon Chile of uh, uh, him, uh, his, his, his wife, and... Uh, his wife being pregnant and it, the painting itself depicting um, uh, the child, which was never born because both uh, Egon Chile and his wife were, were taken by the by the Spanish flu. It's a truly haunting uh, painting. Can you um, you know, you, you wrote that article in the fall prior to um, our, our current <laughs> and you know historical pandemic that we're experiencing. Can you just um, talk a little bit about you know uh, how that article came about and kind of connect it to the the general question of what what role art has uh, in a pandemic? Yeah, so I wrote that, of course, not knowing that only months from then. I would be under lockdown during a pandemic. So I was not thinking about this um, applying necessarily to our lives now, but it's interesting. I published that article in October, how it's kind of taken on a new resonance, even for me having written it. So I was really thinking about, we had just reached the centennial of the 1918 to 19- 1919 flu epidemic, which is often called the Spanish flu, but not because it had anything to do with Spain. They just were the only ones really reporting on it honestly, um, which is a whole other thing you could go into. But for the art aspect, I was thinking about like, well, this happens in 1918. This is a real big time of upheaval in the art world with modernism. It's coming right after the Armory show. There's artists like Egon Schiele, like doing really interesting depictions of the body. And I just wondered, like, I've never seen a museum retrospective about the Spanish flu. I think the closest we got last year was the Mütter Museum um, did an exhibition on the 1918 flu in Philadelphia, which got hit pretty hard. But it wasn't really about art, although they did team up with um, this performance group called Blast Theory to do this parade that commemorated the people that died. And so I just wondered about this absence of art. And that's always interesting to me, like when there seems to be something missing. So I started on this little investigation (laughs) through history to see like what art existed. And like with the Sheila painting... Like, he didn't paint that 
as a memorial to the family he never ended up having, but it kind of ended up being that, like, he started it and then didn't finish it when he and his pregnant wife died in that epidemic or pandemic. And when I was researching the article, I think I was surprised at how little art there was. But then when I started to think about it, well, the art that does exist that was actually grappling with it, like um, Edvard Munch had painted some self-portraits of himself before and after he was like going through the flu. And you just see how they like, saps your energy and if you've ever been really sick like and you get better the last thing you want to do is kind of dwell on what just happened to you you want to move on and especially with that epidemic coming right after world war one there was even more of an urgency to like get back to normal and i it i think now i'm thinking about it more because we keep having all these talks like when are we going to get back to normal and I worry, you You would think that such things would never be forgotten, but I would bet the 1918 flu was pretty obscure to people until this year, even though it killed more people than World War One. It's just we tend to have this forgetfulness with disease. And I think it's because, like, if you died in World War One, like, you died a hero. There's monuments to you, but you probably have flags on your grave every year. But if you died of the flu, you just died of the flu. And so now we're experiencing this loss again. And I wonder if it's going to have artists kind of reflecting on this. Like, there's certainly a lot of art happening right now. Like, people are showing on Instagram. People are doing collaborative projects. But they tend to be very much these kind of, like, we're all together. Let's get through this. They're not really dealing with the really haunting terrible aspects of either getting the flu and thinking you're going to die or losing someone and not being able to mourn them. So because I wrote that article for the Welcome Collection, which is based in um, London, they have a really smart focus on medicine, kind of with a cultural focus. So that is how that article came about. But it's interesting. They are not actually the first place I tried to pitch something similar to. I was pitching things about 1918 flu, like, all last year, year before, and people were like, oh, it's not that timely. Like, what does this have to do with now? And now it's, like, exceptionally timely. So it's interesting how, like, we've had this collective um, memory of something that had really faded out of our public consciousness. Yeah, and I, I think to, that you bring up that point. I mean, it just struck me when you're saying it as far as the amount of deaths exceeding World War One, which is, you know, I, I think if people do know about World War One and done a little bit of research, maybe read literature and the history around it, I mean, it's, it's regarded as an absolute horrific horror on the planet Earth of, of an absolute bloodbath, right? And um, But then, yeah. as you mentioned, you know, the flu contemporaneous with that occurring is taking out even more people right and the difference between how those deaths um are 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 remembered do you find it a little bit eerie now that like you had written that and like you know now everybody's like looking at this and it's like all the spanish and getting into the history of that do you find a little bit strange to observe from your vantage point having already gone into that 
Oh, yeah. Well, and I also find it strange. So this isn't the only article I wrote about the 1918 flu. I wrote some, like, just purely history-focused ones, too. And I was writing about, you know, everyone wearing masks and everything being shut down and the church bells stopped ringing. And when I was writing that stuff, I was like, wow, I can't imagine what that would be like. And now, it's so quickly later, you know, I live in New York. Everyone's wearing a mask. Everything's pretty shut down. And there is like an eerie quiet to a lot of parts of the city. And so it's interesting to have read about that history. Or like even this week, I was writing a story that hasn't gone up about um, plague columns, which were put up in the 18th and 17th century to kind of commemorate that you had made it through a plague. They, there was a really famous one in Vienna. And I was reading about the 17th century plague that that Vienna column commemorates. And there's this passage someone wrote about how it was awful, all the bodies, all the death, but also how awful it was to see your friends on the street and not being able to say hi to them. And I was like, ah, it's like now, <laughs> like it's, it's kind of yeah. wild. But then I also, on the flip side of that, it's of course like these are always awful times but it does kind of reassure me reading through these things that are so similar that like we have gone through this in the past and I think that's the understanding that history gives me like people have experienced epidemics and pandemics before and we're still here like society is still here it's different every time it goes through that people die and their tragedies but i do find it kind of reassuring that it's like people have survived through terrible times that seemed like they will never end and so we will get through this one too yeah i i i appreciate you pulling out that uh, pulling out that point um and you know about the role of history and uh you know and I appreciate all your efforts and the, and the research. And, and I think a lot of what you're writing about have written about, um, while a personal interest to me, um, has some importance of like pulling out history and kind of like reclaiming, um, some ideas that, that, you know, that otherwise might be lost. I, um, uh, one of the things I wanted to chat with you about is, uh, I, uh, personally took notice of, um, you know, so I like spooky stuff, right? Like mm -hmm. I like, um, you know, books like Wisconsin Death Trip um, and like the role of photography, uh, black and white old time um, photography around uh, the occult, even shows that are super popular now, right? On, um, you know, on, on, on television of, you know, trying to capture paranormal and, and things like that. So I have a deep interest in that in the kind of, you know, the veil between like life and, and, and death. And you had written some uh, about, um, you know, the role of photography and spirit photography and like the role it played um, uh, historically, you know, like one sense of like, you know, is there any documentation of like the spirit world versus, you know, the manipulations that go into, you know, basically early filters <laughs> that were created um, to create these images in spirit photography. Can you can you talk a little bit about that article and a little bit about the background of that um, that phenomena? Yeah, and I think I'm not 100 percent sure which article you're referring to, but 
I've written about it a few times, I think in different contexts and given talks about it too. So like spirit photography, I guess for people who might not know, uh, emerged in the 19th century alongside spiritualism, which was in its simplest form, people trying to speak to the dead, whether that was through seances or spirit drawing and spirit photography played on that photography was pretty new and there was already a lot of experimentation with basically any type of new technology and spiritualism like some people even proposed rather than lying laying the transatlantic cable you could use spirits to talk between the u.s and the uk <laughs> so people were and you know if you um, look at like spirit wrapping it's not that dissimilar from morse code so there was all these inter uh, interesting intersections between spiritualism and technology and I am always really interested in 19th century photography because, like, it was the first time in human history you could really rapidly capture moments. But people were still kind of figuring out what that meant. So it started out, uh, like, kind of being people would stage things like paintings, and it got into portraiture and documentation. And with the spirit photos, basically you go into a studio, you get a photo, and supposedly on that photo is a spirit. And they take kind of like different forms, like some of them are very ethereal, just blasts of light. Some of them are actual faces. And when I started researching it, I think I was coming, like I love weird Victorian stuff, like, and the weirder the better. Sure. And there's a lot of funny photographs of like people holding their own or like pretending they're in skiing or something and so I came into I was like look at this weird thing like this is so strange how would anyone believe this but I think as I read about it more and more I got a real empathy with people who were doing it because like if you um lost someone in the 19th century like you maybe didn't even have a photograph of them. And so these things were kind of just to remember that someone had been there at all, however imperfectly. So like, of course, that spirit might look nothing like your loved one, but the need to believe in it was so strong that I think we, from that perspective, can find a lot of empathy in them. And I even got into enough that um, there was this really, I don't know if you know about it, there's this place in New York called the Penumbra Foundation, and they do um, like historic photography practices. So they actually have a tintype studio, and uh, the woman who manages it, Jolene Lupo, created a spirit photograph for me so I got to see the whole process of what it would be like to go into a tintype studio get the photograph and then how it was like exposed on the plate and it was really just it's just a fascinating history of photography and I love that like there's still this one place carrying on tintype spirit photos um and I also did uh, the closest thing I think you can get to like an honest spirit photograph, which is an aura photograph. And I went into um, uh, magic jewelry in Chinatown in New York. And you can get this Polaroid taken of you with like your aura 
supposedly around you and they do this reading and it was just kind of like a nice experience like you know the reading of it was like oh you're really tired you've been running around a lot which I think could apply to anyone living in New York but there is just something oddly nice about kind of like creating these moments of like self-reflection through photography so I thought through that whole process of researching and then actually trying to get firsthand experiences with what a spirit photo would have been like really changed my understanding of it going in and I love any time I can do that with a story yeah I saw I, I saw that the image of the spirit uh photography I think you might have posted that image is it is a it's a beautiful rendition I mean it's a it's incredible photograph um that uh just within that process is a process that 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 takes a long time uh yeah I mean I I think the longest it takes it takes a lot longer on the photographer's part so like creating the plate exposing the plate protecting the plate you as the subject kind of go in there and get a bright light flashed in your face (laughs) and then you're on your way um I I but I I think people think it definitely took takes longer than for me to take a selfie on my iPhone like I think it's like 15 seconds or something you have to hold your pose but it's not anything um yeah it, it it doesn't take as long as like you might think based on um all these stories about people like not being able to smile because they were staring for so long. The, um, uh, yeah, that's what I was wondering too. I know some of those photographs I know with, with their, some of the technologies, older technologies of needing to capture like every bit of light. (laughs) I hear these stories (laughs) of like having to stand in like stifling clothes for a long time. Just. Oh yeah. And I'm sure if I had been wearing like a 50 pound victorian dress <laughs> or something it would have been a lot more unpleasant an incredible uh exercise in patience yeah. um one of the one of the questions i wanted to ask you um that i ask uh, you know uh all the creators i have on on um on the podcast is uh did, did you ever ask yourself why it is uh, you create. I mean, writing's a difficult endeavor, writing and researching and trying to get history right or get the story right. It takes an incredible amount uh, of of effort. Have you ever, you know, kind of wondered for yourself in your creative process why you do it? Yeah, I mean, I think every writer wonders that every time they sit down to write a new and it's not easy. Um, it's not, I think it was like, David Rakoff had something about like writing. It's like you're coming back to the beginning every time. And so definitely it's it's not an easy thing to do to create something, whatever you're doing. Um, I it you know, I just ne- I never had anything else I wanted to do rather than to be a writer. Like I guess going back to your first question about childhood, I think my mom even found something where, I had written at nine years old that I needed to have good handwriting. So I was going to be a writer. So I always just, that's what I wanted to do, but how I got into like history stuff. um, I think it's just like, I see that there's a lot of stories there that aren't being told. And I, I definitely report tons on the current world interviewing living artists, but I also think it's really important that, 
there's visibility to the past because so much of what we have now, everything we have now is built on that. Um, but yeah, it's for process of writing. It is like kind of still a mystery. Every time I sit down to write a story, I'm like, I hope this works (laughs) because you're kind of just basing it on like this, uh, just thing you don't quite understand in yourself that I, I think a lot of artists and creators probably feel where you're, um, I guess going back to spiritualism, maybe another reason why I identify with this. I feel like with art type of writing, you are channeling something in a way that doesn't always make sense, or at least that's how I feel um, for me. Maybe other people are like really just doing it in a way that I haven't quite figured out. Yeah, there's always that. There's always that uh, that question. I think in what you said, you're always kind of like doing it again, right? And it's kind of mm-hmm. part of the theme of like, all right, so all right, I finished that and that's published, and then there's this whole realm, and I know my process, but like, how's all right? Is this going to come out? Like, how's this going to develop? Right? Like, what's it going to be? Yeah, um, totally. One of uh, another another um, a thing I wanted to ask you about is. Um, you do uh, cemetery tours, and um, I uh, uh, right down the road from me. There's I, I did a little research when I moved into town. I'm in uh, Albany, uh, Oregon, just out of the capital of Oregon, uh, Salem, and um, uh, there's a, a Jewish cemetery, uh, Waverly Jewish Cemetery, right down, uh, right nearby uh, me, and. Um, I had I didn't know, but it's like one of the ways I try to learn is like, you know, what's around, what are the parks that are around, what's the nature that's around, and the cemetery being there is the largest uh, Jewish cemetery, I think, between Portland or Se- Seattle and San Francisco, mm-hmm. and um, it's small, and I just, you know, walk around it, and there's like a little placard, and um, it's definitely a, a, a unique history, um, you know, very much tied to to this area. Um I know on your writing and the basis from what I've seen in your tours of the cemeteries, uh, in particular out there, uh, in, in New York city is, uh, kind of, um, your explanation and explication of what symbols are there, the narratives or the stories or the practices, the cultural practices around, you know, cemeteries and mourning in, in, in death can you um, just chat about like some of the kind of like the the history that you find um, in in the tours that you yourself conduct as a as a tour leader? Yeah, and I think every cemetery is unique depending on its time and place. Do you know when when like the Jewish cemetery near you got opened? Yeah, so it's it's it certainly goes back, and then you look at the dates. It's like um, late uh, late nineteenth century, um, and kind of like first half twentieth century. There's not a lot of newer uh, stone, but it was like a particular area uh, to be interred, you know, regionally, and all that stuff's always connected to you know potential like anti-Semitism or whether there's mm-hmm. Jewish culture in particular areas. But yeah, it's it's an old it's it's an old one. I think some of them go back to mid nineteenth century there. And do you, do you, like, have you seen, like, a a 21st century Jewish cemetery? 
I have not. Uh, the other one I had been to was um, the uh, Jewish Cemetery in Prague, which is oh yeah, which is definitely not twenty first century. <laughs> it's not twenty first century. It's it's initially incomprehensible, but wonderfully fascinating. But no, not a newer one. No. Yeah, I'm just I'm curious because um, one of the cemeteries I've spent some time in in New York is Bayside Cemetery in Ozone Park in Queens, and it's also from that time period it sounds like the one near you is and it's really interesting because you know new york has a huge jewish population so there's jewish cemeteries going back to like 1700s and the modern ones uh they're all pretty densely packed um uniform graves and have a lot of like judaic symbolism but then the ones from the 19th century the early 1900s don't they look just like Victorian cemeteries? And it's kind of interesting that these burial traditions have changed over time, like visual expression that the what people were choosing to remember themselves with. I think you can read a lot into like how they saw themselves within society. And I'm certainly not the one to speak on Jewish history, so I won't go too deep into this, but like. I think maybe the one near you, it's always interesting to me to see like, well, they had urns on their monuments or like these really big mausoleums or something that you wouldn't think to see in a Jewish cemetery. It's like, well, maybe that's how they were identifying wasn't necessarily by their religion, but by their place in society, uh, which has changed over time. But anyway, always want to hear more about people's local cemeteries but i guess <laughs> well i one of yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well one of the things that i find you know and and this is very very particular i mean i think the first time that i recall the practice um that i it might exist in other cultures but seen within the jewish cemeteries is placed in a rock on the headstone, which is a, a remembrance. Um, but it's also like a tiny ritual, which I participated in seeing, uh, well, uh, Savannah, I was in, uh, actually I was, yeah, the other Jewish cemetery and all the Gothic, <laughs> fascinating Southern Gothic, uh, you know, um, uh, cemeteries down in, uh, the, the haunted city of, uh, Savannah, Georgia. Um, but the practice of putting, you know, the stones on the top of the uh, gravestone, which for me, even though there's this anonymity to the individuals that I'm there not connected to that history, there's some sort of grounding aspect of that ritual that I just adore. And it's a way to participate or interact in a way that I haven't known in other cultural aspects of um, and somehow seeing you know, piles of stones on top of the stone where others have taken the moment to, to, you know, remember or recognize that individual is just really fascinating practice. Yeah. To really just show like I was here and remembered you. It's a powerful symbol. And I, I wish I've never had the chance to go to Savannah, but it looks like incredible cemeteries there. Well, incredible, but also, I mean, you know, there's always these, you know, I've been down in New Orleans and uh, Savannah, just like the 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 context of like, I don't know, there's something that's kind of southern uh, haunted gothic, but also like, you know, the ghost stories. Right. And um, it, it's pretty deep. And some of it, you know, obviously tilts to commercialize like hokey aspect of which 
I will completely participate in as well. <laughs> um, um, but, but, but also some of the, um, you know, the older history. And I think part of it is, you know, I'm a Yankee. I'm from up in, uh, you know, Rhode Island. I grew up outside of Providence. So, you know, what different regions of this country mean for me, you know, there's, there's a particular meaning of going South, you know, when you're from the North and, uh, uh different ways of interacting. But, um, so your tour, you know, the 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 tours that you do in in New York City. I mean, these popular tours. I mean, they book way up in advance. Or I mean, I know times are now are obviously quite different. But like, <laughs> like yeah, what, not like, so popular what, now. Yeah, like what what like what you know what happens is it an hour or two or like how do you conduct it? Yeah, it really depends. I am always fascinated because I I think a cemetery tour is always a good idea. Um, what people get excited about what they don't so like i've done tours that have sold out immediately on usually they're about symbolism magic spiritualism and women's history people are all in on that the tours i curiously have trouble getting people on are like the nature themed tours which i i wonder if it's like it's one thing to go to a cemetery is another thing to go to on nature walk in a cemetery that maybe attracts a different group but i will say the people that show up for the nature walks are like the most excited to be there because they are (laughs) excited they are always like usually local new york people who like are obsessed with urban nature and they know more about the trees there than me it's always great but yeah it there so i mainly do the tours at greenwood cemetery in brooklyn but i've also done them like um woodland cemetery in the bronx uh hartsdale pet cemetery which is just north here and then i've also done, like a few walking tours in manhattan on death in colonial new york and this used to be a cemetery which was where cemeteries used to be <laughs> that one was also unpopular sadly but i thought it, I, a tour i myself would want to go on you just yes. never quite know what people are going to be into or it just depends like the time of year too. like you schedule as many cemetery tours as you want in October. They will sell out um, in February. It's a little thinner. So it's like um, writing the book that you want to read. I mean, you, you, you want to, cre- you're creating the tour that you want to take, but sometimes yeah, not everybody, not everybody <laughs> wants to take the same tour. Yeah, and, exa- I, and I haven't written any books, but my understanding is uh, you can do the same thing, like write the book you want or write the book that's going to be good for the market. And <laughs> there's uh, the same thing with cemetery tours. But luckily, I don't do them for the money. Um, I mean, I, I do get paid to have full disclosure, but it's not my main job. So I'm really doing it more... Just because, like, I, I think as a writer, I spend a lot of time at my computer writing things for the internet or publishing. And it's nice to actually get out and share stories with humans face-to-face, although, of course, not now in pandemic days. But, yeah, that's what's been my interest in doing them. And I think I've been doing it since 2011. So a little while. And yeah. Yeah, I I always like I have yet run out of things to create new tours about. Uh, and thank you for sharing that. I mean, I find, you know, just um, for myself, like I've 
thought about like, uh, you know, just always ever since I was a little kid, just kind of like whether it's interesting ghosts or like, you know, I listen to a lot of doom and death metal. <laughs> like it's like a component of my personality that I think I always have to navigate. And I think folks who have this interest have to. One of the ways I described it is like even um, kind of like looking and trying to learn from human like atrocities or people under extreme duress. For me, it's always been potentially very uh, inspiring, right? To see how human beings uh, react or how we try to like create meaning uh, with within this context. So for myself, I always tapped into kind of like very vibrant, like energy parts of like, um, like rather than shying away, I've just kind of seen human beings uh, be very interested you know, that that context that they're placed in to be um, very uh, interesting in, in trying. And it's dark. It feels dark. But I just I don't know. I think it's always like we're always looking for permission of like just trying to figure out how to deal with mortality. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think part of the thing is as a philosopher and with the philosophy podcast, I mean, Plato said is just, you know, philosophy is just contemplation of death. That's all it is. Right. All the big questions. Right. Um like, why are we doing any of this? Um, there's a lot of questions you don't have to ask if you're immortal, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, you know, that's so, an interesting way to look at it. Do you mean in like creating space for it? Like, music's kind of, I'm, I'm not in, involved with uh, doom metal or anything, but, <laughs> but there are, there, yeah, there's a lot of ways you can come at it because it is a universal thing. Um, so uh, the the title of the podcast, the big question that I have um, is, why is there something uh, rather than nothing? I was going to ask you your thoughts on that. Like something rather than nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another big question put up there with like what art is. I think like, yeah, it for me, like, I, I think that drawn to cemeteries is like I find that and I know this is not everybody but I do find that recognizing the brevity of life um, and that our time here is brief really does give my life importance and it gives that kind of like something whereas I think um, without that it could feel like nothing so I think like when I walk through Greenwood or cemeteries elsewhere and see all these lives that have come before me, it does really put um, a sense of importance on the time that I have. And also maybe a little bit not that too, because you recognize like I'm, you could be one of a million and that's okay. <laughs> so I, I find those kind of sides of it to be reassuring. And yeah, with the death, um, I think we all experience it. Um, we all have dead. We all confronted at some point in our lives. And so it's very present with us. But I think like you can either recognize it and have a positive relationship with death or you can be afraid of it and for me having spent a lot of time in cemeteries gotten to know funeral directors people in the death industry i think it's 
made me feel less afraid of death and more comfortable with that side of nothing too because as someone that doesn't really believe in an afterlife I also am okay with that and that's been nice to kind of come out through cemeteries yeah and 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 thank you thank you for that answer um uh it's a yeah I, I it's 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 quite the way to quite the way to look at it um so Allison, uh, like I said, um, I've read a lot of your articles. Um, I, uh, th- like I told you, I'm, I'm personally a big fan. Um, I find them to be, uh, just they're exciting in the sense of what they explore and a lot of it feels, um, really new. Um, and I definitely suggest, you know, to all the listeners to, to check out more of your writing, but could you just mention like, ways to 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 access your works or where to look i was going to read the bylines you get a lot of bylines it's a lot of big by, <laughs> no it's very impressive <laughs> um well you just, if you, yeah. yeah i mean i um as I, I, for most people who are full-time writers you end up writing a lot it's your job but um yeah i have i guess i i have most of my work at com, and then I also have a Twitter account under my same name. I guess in terms of things I've written recently, I, I wrote for um, National Geographic about Heart Island because there's a lot of misunderstanding about it right now in terms of COVID-19. Like there was a lot of sensationalizing about New York digging mass graves, but these have existed since the 19th century. And I've also been writing about um, pandemic history for JSTOR Daily recently, trying to like put things in context. But yeah, those are, and then I'm working on a story for Welcome Collection right now about the rural cemeteries right now being these places of urban retreat, much in the same way they were when they were founded in the 19th century. So those are like my. I guess there's a lot of death right now. <laughs> Sadly, I it is. I have never been busier with writing, for better or worse. Um, just because it's like interesting that all these things I've written about for years are suddenly very central on people's minds. Yeah, and um, and, and thanks for laying that out there too. And uh, it's 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 a very nice website, and there's a lot of ability to co- uh, connect to your writings and. Um, um, but I just, uh, Allison, it's it's been a pleasure um, to talk to you, and I just really wanted to thank you for spending time um, on the podcast. Like I said, both from like you know personally, as far as my my interest and in my uh, being really fascinated with your writing, and um, you know your uh, very considered answers. Um, I mentioned a lot of times with this podcast, like there's a selfish component where I'm just really just like listening here talking and just learning uh so it's very you know rewarding for me and for the listeners but i just wanted to um uh yeah i just wanted to really thank you for uh taking the time in uh joining um something rather than nothing yeah and thanks for asking i think like maybe like a lot of creators i don't really pause to think why i do things so this has been interesting for me too Uh, Thanks again, Allison. And um, again, really appreciate your time and you take care. Yeah, you too. Bye now. Bye. You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing.